Okay, if you will take your Bibles, please. Open them to the book of Romans in the 8th chapter once more. We resume our examination of this passage and considering the place of hope in our lives at this time of Christmas. You join me in standing in our reverence for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, beginning once more at the 18th verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what is one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for with perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace this day. We pray that you would open our eyes to truth, open our hearts to the light of your word. Teach us to honor you, God, and help us to look forward with an anticipation and earnest expectation, a true and real hope, God, that everything you have promised is worth everything that it takes. God, let us look unto that, even through the groaning of creation, even through the groaning of our own souls, even through the torments of our terrors. Let us remember that what is promised is worth the cost of it all. Amen. We ask you, God, to give us a perspective that is filled with hope that Christ will be honored as we trust. For it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. We've been examining Romans 8 in order to gain some understanding of the power and purpose of hope. It's a wonderful time of year to consider hope, and as we celebrate the birth of Christ, I want to remind us that it is a time of hope. His birth was the culmination of millennia of hope as the promises of God were fulfilled. However, many missed the promise of His coming and did not find the hope which they should have delighted in with all that they were. They missed it because they did not understand the nature of the promises. They missed it because they did not understand the nature of hope itself. They saw the promises of God through the lens of their own imagining rather than through the lens of what God had told them was coming. It's a common, a common problem even today. We have far more light of revelation than did the people of Jesus' day, and yet even so, there is no lack of people who fail to understand the reason for His coming and the hope that it brings us for eternity. They insist on making His promises about the now, about this physical world of sin, about the merely fleshly enjoyments which it offers them. When we speak of Christmas and hope, it's often perverted in people's minds to mean a time of happiness brought only by lights and music, family, and fun. Now, don't get me wrong. Anybody who knows me knows that I am a sucker for that stuff. And I love the whole celebratory season, the tree to the music. I love the whole thing. But none of those things by themselves is a reason for our hope. The reason for our hope is the promises of God. It's the promise that His plan is going along as He has intended and that he will finally complete what he has begun in the coming of Christ the first time. We celebrate and hope because God can be trusted. And even the earth itself knows this fact. That's why the scripture says that the whole earth groans, waiting for the promised revelation and consummation of God's full promise to us. And that is a promise of restoration. So I want to think with you this morning about the earnest expectation, about the promise of this restoration. And no conversation about it can be full and complete without acknowledging 
the elephant in the room. And that's the, the timing of what God promises to do is God's and not ours. We're going to get Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And we'll start reading in verse 36. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the final times and the end of all things. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 36. No one of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you will also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Amen. God knows the hour. God knows the purposed, intended time, and will nothing will hasten nor delay the day of his coming. It will be at the appointed hour, and it will be in the promised fashion. When Christ returns, he will return exactly when he was intended to return. Just as he came the first time, exactly when he was intended to come. And so one of the things that people get all worked up about is this idea of the timing of the end, and how things can be known or not known, how long it's taking, what in the world's happening, why is God tarrying, why are things happening so fast. You'll hear it on all sides of the equation, and you will find no shortage of people who will try to tell you that they have narrowed down exactly what it's going to be and how it's going to happen and exactly when you should be on your guard. And Jesus said plainly, nobody knows, not the angels in heaven. And in Mark, Jesus said, not even the Son knows. Now, I think he knows now. <laughs> but the point was, don't listen to that stuff. Don't pay attention to fools and charlatans who will tell you that they can tell you when Jesus is coming back. The only thing that we can know with any certainty is that you are closer today to the return of Christ than you were yesterday. Amen. That's all we can know. We can read the signs, we can look at the world around us, and we can, we can think to ourselves that yes, it is probably close. And, okay, it is probably close. But you can't know with any certainty when. And you can't know with any certainty that it will be in your lifetime. You can know with absolute certainty that you are exactly one heartbeat away from the personal return of Christ for you. Amen. So at the moment that your heart stops beating, you will behold the face of Christ. Period. Period. That seems to me to be a far more urgent matter than worrying too much about the timing of all the end of all things. That one you know is coming, and you know that one is coming in your lifetime. You understand what I'm saying? The return of Christ is a reality that we need to cling to, and that we need to hope in, and we need to trust. But we don't need to get so worked up about it and wrapped up in all the finer details of the timing of eschatology that it distracts us from what it is we're supposed to be doing. We need to be sharing the word of Christ with a lost and dying world because not only is the personal return of Christ one heartbeat away from you, it's one heartbeat away from them. And the people that you love and the people that you care about they need to hear the truth of Christ because no other method is given than the preaching of the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And that's what's been given to us to give to them. What this means is that when Christ returns, he will return in his own fashion. He will return in his own time and he will return for his own purposes. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 to 11 say, When he had spoken these things while he watched, 
he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, so will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. You catch the rebuke in that question. You catch the rebuke in that exchange. Don't waste your time. Why are you standing around waiting and, 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 and earnestly expecting and doing nothing else except looking into the heavens trying to figure out when he's coming back? The angels told the disciples on day one, get on about your business. Do what's in front of you to do. Do the things that have been commanded to. And he went on to give them further instructions. Go into Galilee and wait. Do, do what God told you to do. This return, when it happens... You're not going to miss it. I promise you that. I promise you on the authority of Scripture that Jesus is not going to come back and have anybody go, Oh, I missed it. I didn't see it. I was, I was expecting it. I was waiting for it. And it just didn't happen. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. John writes this. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded up as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. You think we'll notice? I think probably we will. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Beloved, there will be no doubt when Christ returns. There will be no confusion about the matter that Jesus has come. When Jesus returns, He is returning for judgment. He is returning to exercise the authority that has been given to Him as the Redeemer, as the King. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9, says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I trust are also well known in their consciences. Now this question of judgment and final judgment is something that worries people. As a follower of Christ, it's not something that you should be worried about. You will not be judged for your sin and punished for your sin. Christ has borne your punishment for that endured the wrath of God on your behalf. And the punishment for your sin has been completely taken care of. But this question of judgment is still a reality. The scripture says it's something we're all going to deal with in some fashion. So look at Revelation chapter 10. And let's see if we can shed just a little bit of light on it. Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And this is recapping what we read in, in chapter 6. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So two books mentioned. One is a book of works 
from which our rewards will be derived. And the other is the book of life. And the book of life is the one that is the question of our salvation. There is really only one question. Are you found written in the Lamb's book of life? If you are found written in the Lamb's book of life, then you are secure in Him. And it is the work of God to save His own. It is His promise. It is His work. It is His labor. It is His guarantee. And ultimately, as we consider hope and its place in our lives, this hope is what sustains us. It's the reality that God keeps His word. He's not going to vacillate on the promises that He's made. He's not going to suddenly decide, well, okay, I've got this book of your works open, and I guess I'm going to look at your works, and I'm going to decide, yeah, I'm going to take you out of the book of life because I don't like what you did. This is not the question. The question is, are you in the Lamb's book of life? Are you found in Christ? Have you laid everything that you are upon Him by the grace of God and trust His work on your behalf? Are you His? That's the question. And that's the question that needs to be carried unto the world. The question of this thing. That God Himself has made a way for us to be reconciled. Beloved, the hope of the Gospel is that simple truth. That there is no hope in a God who says, I'm going to give you a list of tasks that you must accomplish. I'm going to give you a set of behaviors that you must ascribe to. I'm going to give you a set of things that you must do. And if you can accomplish all of them to my level of satisfaction, then I will consider letting you into my heaven. There's no hope in that God. There's no hope in a God who says, ah, you missed the mark, but if you'll just give me a little money on the side, I might let you in later. There's no hope in a God that judges you according to His standard and says, you keep it or you die. Because none of us and keep his standard. None of us will ever be good enough. None of us will ever be able to accomplish even the slightest bit of righteousness that will in any fashion please God. And even those who believe that they can recognize the futility of their actions. It's why they invent things like purgatory and why they invent things like praying people out of purgatory and paying money to get people out of purgatory because they recognize that everybody's going there. When Pope John Paul died, Catholics all over the world prayed for him to get out of purgatory. This is the Pope. And if the Pope wasn't good enough to get to heaven apart from purgatory, what hope does any Catholic have? None. What hope does anybody have in a God who says to us, you must work your way into my heaven? There's no hope in that. But there is hope in a God who says, I have accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. And for those who will take me at my word and trust me and believe that what I've said I will do, in that God, there is hope. Amen. Because He has fulfilled everything He ever said He would do. The message of the Gospel is that you must be reconciled to God on His terms. The message of the Gospel is that God has made a way for you to be saved. The message of the Gospel is that God can be trusted. The message of the Gospel is when you cry for mercy, you will receive it. This is the message that we're called to deliver. We're called to deliver the message of the Gospel by the facts of the Scripture, not by anything else. We're called to deliver the message of Jesus Christ, God eternal, taking on flesh born of a virgin, living a perfect life in our place. Never sinning, completely fulfilling every command that God ever gave. That self-same Jesus dying for our sin as a substitute for our debt. God counting Him as our sin and counting to our credit His righteousness. The content of the Gospel is Jesus Christ slain for sin laying in a tomb for three days, and being raised again as evidence that God has accepted His payment on our behalf. The content of the Gospel is derived 100% out of Scripture. And it is our faith in what God has said 
It is the foundation of our hope. It is our faith in the God who has said it. That is the bedrock that drives everything that we are. And any conversation about hope that is real must be rooted and anchored in the God of the Bible and in the truth that he can be trusted to be everything that he said always. This is where hope is derived from. Hope is derived from the steadfast certainty that our God is everything that he said he was going to be. That's how we're connected to him. That's how we're saved. But that self-same hope that believes him, that takes him at his word, allows us to look forward and see with purpose and clarity the restoration of all things. It allows us to see that there will come a time when all of the things that we are enduring in this life will be resolved and they will be paid in full. That God will do everything that he said he would do. And that there is absolutely no part of this life which will not be completely and finally atoned for and restored to the fullest of its perfection. That God always intended this restoration. Now, part of this restoration begins with, honestly, we have to acknowledge it, the destruction of the old. This world that we live in is going to pass away. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be removed. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with burning heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Now what is Peter telling us? He's telling us that we ought not to establish too much hope in the stuff of this life. He's telling us that we ought not to put too much of our hope in the things that we can touch, in the tangible world around us. And we ought not to be too concerned about the fact that the world seems to be shaking itself apart. We ought not to be too worked up in fear and terror over the, the impending end of this world. People are going to become concerned. People are going to be very confused. People are going to be very scared. We see this around us all the time. And while we are called to be stewards of the earth and not waste it and not wantonly destroy it, we are not establishing our hope in the continuation of this rock. We, in fact, know that this rock will be destroyed when Christ returns. It will end. And it will end and be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. It is going to perish by fire and it will be burned up in the day of his judgment. He will reestablish what he has promised to establish. So for us as Christians, there's not really any terror in 
the things that are going on around us and all the environmental crises, whether they are fabricated or not, even if they are 100% legitimate and all the things that the media wants you to believe about them are true, our response to that is, it's not going to last anyway. You can't change anything that God has ordained. And in the end, this world will end. We need to take care of it while we're here. But you're not going to make it last forever. You're not going to change its duration not one moment. You're not going to change its course one iota. You're not going to alter what God has determined is going to happen. And acknowledging that fact lets you rest in peace while you hope for what is to come. It lets you be settled and it lets you be stable. When you recognize at the beginning that the old has to perish before the new can come, suddenly we're not so worked up about the things that we see going on around us. Suddenly they're not really too powerful to hurt us. They're not really too powerful to distract us. They're not really too powerful to make us afraid. Now, just as an aside, that scares them. Your lack of fear scares others. It causes them to be unhappy with you. So be aware that when you don't demonstrate an appropriate level of fear in the mind of other people, they're going to have bad things to say about you at the very least. At the very least, they're going to set themselves to make sure that your life is less happy if you do not demonstrate an appropriate level of fear in their mind. It doesn't really matter. They will do what they will do. They will say what they will say. Our hope is not in their word. Our hope is in the word of God. Amen. And so resting in that truth, we can look at what the scripture tells us and we can know that this world is destined to be destroyed. And that this world will be raised anew by the power of God. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and we'll start reading at verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were the sea gave up the dead who were in it, the death and Hades delivered them up. They were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride going for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, liars, idolaters, I'm sorry, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You can skip down with me, please, um, to verse 22. He's, he's telling us about the new Jerusalem, and then he says in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of mirroring to shine in it, for the glory of the Lamb illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, 
but only those who are written in the book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the land. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there should be no more a curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they will need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What God promises us is the earth made new. What God promises us is an earth that is better than the old. And there are some differences that we need to be aware of. There is no more sun nor moon, nor need of them. For the Lord himself is its light. Now, at first pass, this might seem like a loss. I like the sun. I like seeing it. I like the moon. I stepped out the other night and, and the moon was full and the light was clear and it was beautiful. Yeah. But... I want you to consider with me for just a moment that the sun and the moon and the stars and the glory of those things, they are merely opportunities for us to have a glimmer of the glory of what God himself is. God is the source of those things. He is the one who invented them. He is the one who said, this will let them have a taste. So when the taste has been replaced by the fullness Are you going to miss the taste? No. Consider it like this. Before Joyce and I were married, I had a photo of her. And I would lay in my bed at night and I would look at the photo of my wife and I would think how lovely she is and how I longed to be married. And then we were married and I say to her, go away, I have my picture. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? No, of course not. Never. I don't need to go gaze at a picture lovingly. I have my wife. And she is the fullness of what the picture promised, and then some. Far more than I ever dreamt. Far more than I ever imagined. Beloved, right now we look at it and say, no sun, no moon, no stars. See all those things that I think I love? I promise you this. You're not going to miss them. Because the hope that we have is the part that says that God himself will be in our midst. And that, that is the greatest change of this earth versus the coming earth. The physical manifest presence of God dwelling among his people. No longer presented to us in images and pictures and hidden shadows and nuanced prophecies. But God himself dwelling among us. So substantially and so powerfully and so fully that we can exchange ourselves with him in some way that we don't understand. Communication doesn't go far enough. It doesn't let us completely comprehend the sort of relationship that we will have with him. We have been adopted into his family as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And his name will be written in our foreheads and he he himself will be our light. He himself will be our hope. The fullness of what God is, is ours when we are there. And so there is nothing that you're going to lose in the exchange. There is nothing that you're going to look at and say, oh, I wish it was like that. All those things will be gone, and God will replace them with himself. And it's important for us to recognize that all of those things are merely promises of the coming of God. And so the delight that we find, the joy that we feel from experiencing those things, if we do not carry that fully into worship by saying, God, what beautiful things you have made and how glorious are you, we are idolaters. 
We need to make sure that we are always driving our hearts and our minds forward into the fullness of worship when God shows us His glory in His creation. Because to not do so is to do what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he says they exchange the glory of the Creator for the creation. That, beloved, is a lie. In that, there is no hope. In that, there is only death and destruction. For us as Christians, we need to be always pressing, always driving, always striving to see God, to, to behold Him in the fullness of whatever it is that He's showing us. Amen. And it is absolutely true that this must become the flavor of our hope. Look, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. You will see your departed loved ones. Those who are found in Christ are there waiting for you. But they better not be the main thing that you want to see. Because they are not the fullness of heaven. They are not the fullness of the promise. The fullness of the promise is the presence of God. And so often we sell ourselves short by anticipating the wrong things with the strongest desires. Yes, I recognize the fact that we want to see those that we have loved who have gone on ahead of us. I recognize the fact that there are holes in our hearts and holes in our lives where people used to live and now they're not there anymore. I know that. But I also know that those people, if they belong to Christ, would be weeping if they knew that you wanted them more than you wanted God. And since there are no more tears in heaven, hopefully God hides that from them. For us as believers, our hope needs to be steadfastly fixed on our God. This is the purpose of it. This is the promise of it. And it ties into the reality of what the revelation of our renewal is going to be. So if the creation itself is groaning with earnest expectation for the revealing of the sons of God, it's important for us to have all of this set right in our heads because you cannot exercise the fullness of what it means to be the son or daughter of God without this being on the right ground. You see, there is nobody who belongs to God who does not get to God through Christ Jesus. Amen. There is nobody who belongs to God who has not gotten there by the blood of the Lamb being applied to them. And for us as believers, it's important that we understand that the hope of our salvation is the bedrock and the root of the hope of our future. Because what is going to happen to us is that we will be revealed as the sons of God. Now, there are some present manifestations that might help us get the picture. That there is a current present revealing which should be showing the more we walk with Christ that we don't actually fit in so well with the world around us. The more you begin to take on the flavor of Christ, the less you're a really comfortable fit with people who hate Him. The more you begin to love Him, the more you become unlovely to those who hate Him. The more you begin to put on his character, the more you become less appealing to those who hate his character. That should follow pretty average or pretty, pretty clearly to us. So let's think about what this actually looks like. First of all, we love the law of God. Psalm 119 verse 113 says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So those that are, that are loving God kind of, but really love the world more, Eventually, it reaches a point where our love for God and our love for His law is so profound that we really don't even want to be around them. Verse 165 of Psalm 119 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. It gives us stability. So there is a love for God's truth and a love for God's law that absolutely establishes us. It settles us. It anchors us. We can know that no matter what's going on around us, God's word is true and his promises are true because of it. But then there's also an aspect of the direction of our heart's intention. Look at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 
Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 16, says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now, did you catch what Malachi just said here? Those who love the Lord and meditated on his name began to speak to one another. And God noticed and said, I'm going to write their names in a book of remembrance. I'm going to reward this. They're going to love me. I love, I love to see that. I'm going to reward this love for my name. But then he goes on to say in verse 17 that, uh, let's, let's read it again. Let me get this right. I'm going to make them my jewels. What, what are your jewels? They're the beautiful baubles that you, that you decorate yourself with. They're, they're lovely. They are something that is precious to you. You, you find them desirable. God says he's going to make us his jewels. And that he's going to spare us. He's going to preserve us. He's going to make sure that we are there. And then it says, you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. But the you has changed objects. It's not that God is discerning between the righteous and the wicked. It's the world discerning between the righteous and the wicked. When we are honoring God and loving Him and, and declaring His truth and, and delighting in talking about God when that's the stuff of our conversation, it marks you out because there is a desire for God which is ours and not theirs. They don't understand the context of your conversation. They don't understand the hope that's in you. They don't understand the truths that you, that you would love to talk to them about. And the more that you understand the truth of God, the more that you dwell on Him, meditate upon His name, think about His greatness, delight yourself in Him, the more that is going on, the more it's marking you as not of this world. The more it's putting a stamp upon you that the world looks at and says, what's going on with Him? He used to be just like me, but now he's not like me anymore. What's happening here? Beloved, this is the mark of God upon your life. And it's, a, it's something that's given here to set you out. And, and it also follows up then that the more that that is the character and the nature that's being pressed on you, who you want to hang out with? Other people who want to talk about the same things you want to talk about. We begin to love the brethren... Because the brethren, the people who actually love God, we're all bound together by this love for God. Look, listen to how John describes it in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now these are just three of the ways that the change that is coming upon us later is being manifested now. But I want you to follow very carefully with me. I'm going to try and say this carefully so that you can. The change that's being manifested in us now is a precursor to what's coming later. And if you're establishing your hope in things that are not a part of what God is doing in your life, then what's coming later is going to come as a rude awakening going to come as a distressing shock. All those who think that God's only purpose in their life is for them to have their best life now and to have all the money they can get and all the pleasure they can derive and all the stuff and the fame and the wealth and, and the fortune and all those things just to have an easy life, even if that's all it means to them. All of those things might be fine if there were no better hope. But the fact that there is a better hope that God Himself is preparing us for means that we should not be wasting our time delighting in those things. Amen. We should not be wasting our time desiring those things which are going to pass away with this very earth itself. 
And we should be setting ourselves to grow into the likeness of that which we will be. And don't miss this bit. It is the revelation of the fullness of our nature as the sons of God that the earth is longing for. Because that's the promise. It's the revelation of what God has been doing in us. Remember, we talk about this a lot. Remember what Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 3 about how God has been vindicating himself and showing off his bride in the heavenly places and saying, look at, at the work. Look at what I've done. As we begin to ponder this and begin to think about this, the truth is, is that God has already begun the work that he is going to fulfill at the return of Christ. He has already begun the work of fashioning us into the likeness of Jesus. You have already begun the transformation that will be culminated at his return. And it is that transformation that the earth itself is groaning for. It's that transformation that the earth longs for. We will be given new bodies that are fit for the presence of God in glory. We will be given new hearts and new minds that no longer desire sin in any way. And there will be no remaining sin nature. There will be no defilement of the flesh. And the purpose of God in everything that we have lived and endured and struggled with and wept over will be revealed. You got questions? I do. He's got answers. And he will show us because in the end it is the wisdom of his plan that will be on display. Luke 8, 17 says, Nothing is secret that will not be revealed nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to life. The fullness of the plan of God. We will understand the why of all things. We will see the wisdom of what he has done. And what makes me most amazed is that we will agree with God in everything that he did. We're going to look at it and say, Lord, you were right. Wow, how awesome is your way? How perfect is your plan? I, I understand and I agree with you that this is the right thing to have done. That you were right in all of your plans. There's not one piece of your plan which you could have done any differently and achieved the maximum glory for Jesus Christ. It is the sanctification of the saints that is the capstone of creation. It is what God is doing in us that he is going to use to bring the most glory to the risen Christ. For he is making us life under Christ. We have been fashioned into his image. And because we have been fashioned into his image through the redemption that he purchased, in the end, we will be more than the original creation. Look at Romans chapter 5. For some reason, this didn't make it into your notes. But Romans chapter 5. I don't see why, because it didn't make it into my notes. That's okay. I know what I'm saying. chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was the type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and by the gift of the grace to the one man, Jesus Christ, bound into man. And the gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, 
the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does this mean? It means that what God has done in the way that he ordained the world to work is better than what it would have been without it. That the glory that's being revealed in us through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ on our behalf is better than the glory of the original creation. The glory that is ours because of the fall and the restoration brought to us through Christ is better than the glory that Adam made. Beloved, this is what is ours as followers of Christ. This is what has been trusted to us. This is what has been given to us as our hope. The hope that in the end, what God is doing is better than anything we could have imagined, better than anything we could have planned, better than anything we can comprehend apart from His glory. And it is the revelation of Christ in us, which is the fullness and the final reality of everything that He has done. And it brings maximum glory to the risen Christ. He receives the most glory possible. Whatever you're enduring, whatever you're suffering, whatever your sorrow, whatever your shame, whatever your secret wish you can do away with, I promise you this, that God has ordained it for your good and that that good ultimately will bring more glory to Christ than anything that could have happened had you not had it. Amen. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how hard it is. Look at Romans chapter 8. Tail end of the chapter, well, more than a minute. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Listen to what he says. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and he justified, these he also glorified. What is the intention of whatever it is that's going on in your life, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8? It is conformity to the image of Christ. It is the purpose of God to conform you to the image of Christ. And whatever's going on, all things working together for the good of those who love Him. That's defined in that statement, conformed to the image of Christ. God has done what He has done in order to shape you into the likeness of Christ. That's the flow of the thought. That's the intention of God. The elder brother and the firstborn over all creation receives the greatest glory. And all these things have been done so that He might be the firstborn over many brethren. So that he might receive the glory of the firstborn. So that he might receive the glory that is his desert. And in the end, it is the power of his beauty to transform us. Look at me at 1 John chapter 3. First John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, verse 1, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is, in, when he is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Look again at verse 2. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For, which is another word for because, because we shall see him as he is. 
What is John telling us? He's telling us that there's something powerful in the beholding of Christ with clarity that is transformative in its nature. Now, this is not only found in John's writing. Paul writes about this extensively in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to read in a moment a fairly large passage to, to kind of tie that all together. But I want you to just dwell with me on this thought for just a moment. The clearer you see Christ in truth, the more you are transformed into his image. So the more clouded your vision of him is, what does that mean for your life? If you allow the things of this world and the things of this life to cloud your vision of Christ, to get in the way of your beholding him, what you're doing is you're throwing roadblocks up for your gazing upon him. You're slowing your transformation. Now, God is sovereign and all things work according to His perfect plan, but that's way above my pay grade. I can only give you the simple instructions that should make your life easier. If you will gaze upon Christ with clarity, you will find that the gazing upon Him transforms you. The more you behold Him, the more you begin to look like Him. Amen. Now we can see that in life and in practice all the time. Parents who love their children were particular about who they let them hang out with. Why? Well, because you kind of start to look and act like the people that you hang out with. You, you, you wanted to make sure that you didn't let your children hang out with a bunch of hoodlums because you didn't want them to be a hoodlum. You try to protect your children from the things that they cannot understand and the things they cannot see, and you expose yourself to all manner of accusation from them, but in the end, your intention is true. More than that, your intention is biblical. Because the scripture says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, does it work the other way? If bad company corrupts good morals, what does good company do? According to John, it enhances them. It makes you more like Christ to behold Him in His glory, to behold Him with clarity, to behold Him with truth. It makes you more like Him to gaze upon Him. And Paul speaks of this as well. There is a wonder and a splendor and a worth in that transformation that goes beyond our simple ability to understand. And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He's speaking about the time when Moses came down off the mountain and his face, his face glowed. And the people were scared, and so Moses covered his face with a veil to kind of hide them from the glory of God. Paul says that was a hard thing for them. Their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You can read that, we do not lose hope. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled for those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blind, if you do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I'm going to read that again. We have this treasure, this treasure of beholding Christ, of being transformed into his image, of the likeness of Christ being made in us, the privilege of beholding him, the glory that's ours because of it. We have that treasure in these earthen vessels, in this body of clay, so that the power and the glory may belong to him and not to us. You see, God has established the world in such a way that he receives the glory for the work that's being done in us. And that is exactly as it should be. And part of that glory is the very trials and troubles that rob our hope when our hope is set on the wrong things. But when our hope is set in Christ, and our hope is set on the right things, and our hope is set on the transformation of our character into the likeness of Jesus, then the things of this world do not have the power to steal our hope. Let's return. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in my body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you for all things, but for your sakes, the grace having spread to the many may cause thanksgiving to abound the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen Well, this is the hope. This is the truth of everything that God has promised us. Whatever it is that you face, whatever it is that threatens to steal your joy and rob you of your hope, know that God has brought it into your life so that it literally becomes a source of hope for others. It becomes a vessel by which truth can be communicated. It becomes an opportunity for the gospel to be declared. It becomes life itself. You must have your eyes fixed steadfastly on Him for that work to be most efficient. You must have your heart stayed upon His glory. You must live your life with your heart in His hand. Knowing that what he's promised you is sure and certain. This is the earnest expectation for which the creation groans and for which our own spirits groan as well. Well, one day you will shed this body and one day you will shed this life. And in that moment, you will see and understand all of these things as you behold with clarity the face of God in Christ. The transformation of your sanctification will be complete when you gaze upon Him unfiltered. Amen. We will be like Him. That's your hope. And that's the hope of His coming. That's why He came. Not to deliver you from hell but to redeem you for his own. You are the bride gift of God to Christ. And you are the love gift of Christ and God. And in that there is glory. And in that there is hope.
Father, I ask that you give to us grace and help us understand the majesty and the glory and the power. Father, I pray that you take this incredible pour offering and make it something powerful in the lives of all of you. Pray, God, that you would manifest your spirit and that you would let your truth be clear. Lord, anything that I've said amiss or gotten wrong in, in how I speak it or how I present, Father, I just pray that you would overcome that by your grace. That you would let all of us dwell in the hope of your coming and live a life that is manifestly steadfastly fixed upon that day. God, as the creation itself longs for the revelation of your children to be everything you promised to make them, let that be our growing as well. Let that be our hope. Let that be our desire that Christ would be glorified as his form in us. We ask all of these things in the perfect and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.